Welcome to WP Tonic, episode 138. Today, we've got a great episode. We're talking all about CSS, cascading style sheets. Uh, and I'd like to intro- let the panel introduce themselves, I should say. And let's start with Alex. Alex, who are you and what do Hi you there. do? I'm Alex Sunning. I am a freelancer for blogging and marketing, obviously specializing in WordPress. Very good. Jackie, who are you? What do you do? I'm Jackie D'Elia. I run Jackie D'Elia Design in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I focus on, let's see, what am I focusing on this week? Okay, no. Uh, I focus (laughs) on SEO, content strategy, and design, and I primarily work in WordPress. Very good. And Sally, our spotlight guest from episode 137. That's right. I just, you know, can't keep away from you guys. Uh, my name is Sally Getch. My business is WP Fangirl. I do WordPress consulting, and I'm also the organizer of the East Bay WordPress Meetup in Oakland, California. Very good. Jonathan. Oh, hi there, folks. I'm the founder of WP Tonic. We're a maintenance um, small job fix company aimed at power um, bloggers and people that run in membership and WooCommerce. And also we help designers and consultants um, make um, custom themes. Excellent. And I am John Locke. My business is Lockdown Design, and I specialize in WordPress, specifically in local SEO and WooCommerce. So let's get right into the news stories. Uh, There is a a juicy one uh, off the top. Uh, The Wix mobile app. This code looks familiar. Hmm. Where have I seen this before? Well, it turns out that Wix, you know, has their new mobile app, and it's basically the WordPress mobile app. Uh, Alex, what what did you think about this post from Matt Mullenweg? So I thought this was interesting. Um, So obviously Matt Mullenweg runs a billion-dollar company, I think this is this is this doesn't need to be complicated. Like this is clearly a straightforward legal issue. If there is a legal case to be made, then like it seems fairly obvious that Automatic has the resources to make that case and um should be quite happy to. I think I'm not I'm not sure like legal disputes are best solved through the medium of blog post. But um yeah, it was. It was like the the. It's clearly a. Well, I guess we haven't heard from. We don't know anything from Wix, I guess, but it seems pretty clear cut that there's a very easy case to be had here, and it's a good opportunity to test the GPL. Um, which which is often seldom done, I think. No, I think you're right. I think it's going to be an interesting opportunity. Jackie, what were your thoughts on this post? My thoughts on this post are that um, I think putting it out there in the blog post is maybe encouraging them to go ahead and make it open source, their source code, to avoid any legal issues, but to just point out that they have violated GPL by um, using the source code and not releasing it publicly and making it available. Um, which is the true spirit of GPL. And I, I guess the WordPress Foundation would be the one that would be um, taking action if it needed to do that. And I may, I'm assuming that WordPress Foundation is has control over the, the GPL 
uh, WordPress source. So I would think that they would be the ones. I don't know if Automatic would. I would lo- I'd love to find out for sure if that is the case, but I don't believe it would. Um, but I definitely think that um, if you take source code that's open source and you're going to be using it for a product that you're charging for and you're not going to release it, you're in violation. And I think they should force the issue and get them to release it. No, I think you're or right. Rewrite, or rewrite should... their code uh, on their own. Yeah. Hire some people and write their own code. No, I agree. Sally, uh, what do you think about this? <clears throat> I think there's a train going by in the background, but um, <laughs> so you may not hear me too clearly. I, I do agree with, with Jackie that I think the point of, of addressing this in a post was to avoid having to go to court if possible. Uh, you know, we know that Matt is perfectly willing to sue people, uh, but that his point was, you know, this was released under the GPL. You are totally free to take the code and do whatever you want with it as long as you release it under the GPL and abide by the license. So, uh, uh, you know, and, and I think that is important to make a point out of, I mean, you know, GPL and how to handle it in, in the premium WordPress products has certainly been an issue that's come up before. Uh, and I was just listening to um, Pippin and Brad on Apply Filters talk about, you know, what do you do when somebody uh, basically takes your code and, and you know, re-releases it with, without noticeable modifications? And, and what they pretty much said was, unless they're violating our trademarks, uh, it's usually best to ignore them because these people want the attention and the, and the links as, as much as anything else. Yeah, Jonathan. Um, well, I think it's great news for the WordPress Foundation. I, I can see a sizable contribution to um, <laughs> the foundation going their way. Christmas has arrived early, I would, I would say. So anybody looking for sponsorship from the WordPress Foundation, I think it's probably a good time to make a, a pitch to them because I, I can see a substantial check going their way. And um, it'd probably be the best way to settle this matter to if I was Wix, would be to um, settle this matter as quickly as possible with a, a substantial check to the WordPress Foundation and probably then find a good developer on a good freelance, you know, freelance um, website and um, pay him like $3 an hour and make their own, John. Definitely. They can ask the orange guy. Yeah, um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think you could write. Uh, you really could write this stuff, could you? Really, you, you know, no. you wouldn't even believe that a company the size of Wix would go and pilfer some open source code, would you? So blatantly, you know, um, you just couldn't even. If you wrote this, people would just think you're bonkers, wouldn't they? Well, you know, it, it, it's obvious that they, you know, look at WordPress for for guidance, and and they have some sort of like envy. Because you you can look at the other YouTube channels that run, uh, you know, WordPress shows, and they're always advertising against them. I think this is this article is basically Matt saying you don't want to step to this, and uh, just basically giving them a chance to make things right. You know, either make it open source, or uh, you know, go write your own code. Quit or, nicking ours, and also give a very large contribution to a good good foundation as well, John. Oh, definitely. Money is always accepted. Yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he is, they have, they are not, um, afraid to sue. Ask the, uh, 
you know, WordPress answers guy and ask thesis guy. They're definitely not afraid. So um, on to our uh, next news story, which is from Alex actually wrote this lessons from field. Uh, we'll let the, you know, Alex, you're best uh, suited to explain yeah, sure. one of this article. So about five years ago, when it was the WordPress premium theme market was first emerging, uh, I tried to sell premium themes. And can, I, can I ask, Alex, were you 10 years old at the time or something? Uh, I was 16 at the time. All right. All right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was the internet. No one needs to know. Basically, the article tells the story of how we, we spent uh, six months building this product. And it, I wouldn't say it went terribly, but maybe like one set up from terribly. It didn't go very well at all. Um, and I thought it would be interesting with a huge amount of hindsight to share kind of what I learned at the time. And basically I built this product and no one was interested. And um, some interesting lessons for uh, people doing that now. Um, and yeah, clearly it's resonated with people. I don't know if everyone else has also had this experience, just didn't want to share it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the post just tells that story um, and kind of tries to tease out some some lessons learned from missing the opportunity at kind of the start of what I call the gold rush. Um, Jackie, what are what are some things that that maybe you want to ask Alex like directly about this article? You know, yeah, I, I read the article and had a lot of great information in it. I, I think it was really interesting. Your discussion about affiliates in there was one of the things that I noticed uh, mm. that um, your, your your initial perception of what affiliates were and what they would do for you versus what your, how you view that now and how, I guess, that um, if you had had that attitude or perception when you first started, it might have fueled some additional growth for you. Um, I think, you know, affiliates is such a touchy subject for everybody. It's, you know, I struggle with it a lot on my on my own, whether or not how much time I want to devote to uh, working with affiliate marketing. Um, but it's genuinely out of usually for me, it's as a result of finding a product I really like and then it, considering it more like a partnership, you know, where you're helping to promote that product, but you truly like the product and want to use it. And I think uh, that that was something um that might have helped fuel this growth. And I enjoyed reading your perspective about how that has changed and how it wasn't actually taking sales away. You're viewing it now as it actually is adding sales that you would not have gotten um, instead of having to give a cut of your revenue and view it as splitting up a pie. You actually get more pie now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, I don't think I actually talked about it too much in the post, but what you just said about, having people as partners on board who are um, who you're working with to make sure there's like a, a consistent quality in, in their work, promoting what you're doing. And also, you know, the actual product itself, making sure that people who this uh, is something that's appropriate with um, is, is super important. Um, 
and you know communicating more with people saying this is what having expectations from the people you're partnering with um instead of just saying have this affiliate commission do what you like um sending out what you want from affiliates i think is is the was one of the big things that we missed out there definitely I also liked what you mentioned about, um, you know, your willingness to make purchases for software licensing and, and I guess tools and a platform that would allow you to sell that easier and that you looked back on that and had said, yeah, I wish I would have spent a little bit of extra on this to, to make that licensing, um, membership a little smoother. And, uh, I'm really big on customer experience. And I think that's a really good insight in there is that if you, want people to make purchases and to share that and um, grow that community, making it easy for them to do and offering refunds. It was another thing you mentioned yeah. in there, which I thought was kind of all ties into that whole customer experience. I think those were valid. The, the other only ta- other takeaway that I'd get is, you know, a lot of times it seems as if products that do really well or frameworks that are end up being very successful is just a lot of series of events that occur that, can even be random at times, and it just turns out that way. I mean, if you meant, I think Studio Press was mentioned in here, and there's a lot of things that happened right around that time that made Studio Press end up being where it was, and had some 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 things to do with. I think Brian Clark was involved with Thesis at the time, and there was a split there. There's a lot of events that went on to kind of propel that to make that happen. But um, your points are well taken, and anybody who's thinking about launching a product now and that those considerations are really valuable in assessing how you would want to move forward with it. Sally. Or Jonathan. Jonathan, Yeah, go ahead, Jonathan, if you had something you were ready to say. As always, Sally. Uh, um, Well, I thought thought it was really um, a kind of a really great article and it it, it was linked to a few things that I've been thinking about, John knows that. And, um, you know, it was linked to what Chris Lemmer said in his presentation at the Sacramento WordCamp about how he went about promoting his blog and his online property and how he approaches affiliates. And also linked to our interview with Cole Davis, wasn't it, John? Uh, about um, digital outreach, you know, how do you promote a product? So I, I felt that it was a great article and it kind of fell into what my own interests have been recently and and um, a guest that we've had that I thought was a fantastic interview. So um, I thought you're the bit, the reflection about affiliates, but the other thing is that you had a pretty strong online property in the WordPress, and you met in the article that you didn't really um, utilize that um, the relationships you had built through that online property very efficiently. Um, on reflection, why do you think you really didn't use the kind of um, name recognition and goodwill? Was it linked? I think you hinted in the article that you were, you, you and your partner at the time were fearful that people were going to steal your theme. Was that the main reason? Right. So there's a, there's a number of factors in play there. So um, at the time I was running WPShout.com um, and probably had like about a thousand readers or so subscribed, which is like sizable. There's a WordPress audience. Um, 
there's two factors in play. One is uh, we were concerned that people were going to nick our ideas, which, as I talked about in the article, was not a especially valid concern. We were doing something new, something that was actually new with widgets, um, letting people like customize their homepage more, which you know is is still on now. But it wasn't. It was very easy to copy. Once we'd released it, the, it would take you you know ten minutes to to copy it. So that was not really a valid concern. That meant that we were scared to uh, talk about the specifics of what we were doing. The other part is just ignorance. Really, I didn't really understand what I was doing. I think um, I didn't we didn't have an email list at the time. Or I think maybe we signed up some people to an email list because we'd heard that was a good idea, but I didn't email them um, until launch day. So there's, there's two factors in play there. Um, we had never done anything like that, and we just made a lot of mistakes. Um, but also uh, we were just scared to talk about it, really, until we knew we were within a week of being ready. Sally. Uh... Yes. Uh, you know, these, these are mistakes that beginners in any business tend to make. Um, and it's, you know, I used to do a lot of work with authors and authors always like, somebody is going to take my idea for a book. It's like, nobody cares if they take your idea because they're, you know, it's, it's your implementation that, that matters is, you know, you could have three different authors use the same basic, you know, plot line concept, et, et, et cetera, for, for a book and come out with three different, completely different books. Uh, and, uh, you know, if they're all in, you know, the same genre, people might buy and read all three of them. It, it, you know, it doesn't make that much difference. But people who aren't experienced worry about that. People who are more experienced. I remember someone who was a professional uh, speaker and had been for decades saying, uh, you know, it turns out that it doesn't matter um, how much you give away in a talk because 95% of the people will never never follow through on a single thing you suggest. <laughs> Uh, and uh, this is, is pretty much how it works. People hear, oh, yeah, great idea. And, you know, and they go home and they don't do anything about it. Unless uh, they're weeks. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there will be the occasional, the occasional person who does. But, um, you know, Wix and WordPress basically do extremely different kinds of, of things. And, and so well, they did. Uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, the fact that they have a similar editor for their app doesn't change, uh, you know, the type of website that it's appropriate to build with Wix and the type of website that it's appropriate to, to build with WordPress. Um, but, you know, that's an easy kind of mistake. And many people, you know, who are much older than Alex was at that time, uh, don't have, you know, they start freelancing, they go into business uh, for themselves, and they have no idea about the kind of effort that you have to put into marketing, because they never had to do that before. Somebody else in the company did that for them. Uh, and I, so it's just, you know, they're, they're all really easy mistakes to, to make, and uh, probably mistakes that you didn't make twice. Yeah, there's a, to, go ahead, Alex. Sorry, there's a. Uh, I think it was Casey Neistat has this great talk where he says ideas don't matter, execution is everything, and that you know speaks to completely what you said there. I was going to just point out that 
you know, worrying about somebody taking your ideas and your work in the GPL environment, right, that we're in, that is so easy for anybody to do. I mean, anybody can take themes that have been built and if they're GPL, they can just go ahead and rename them, just um, make changes to it and re-release it the next day and um, sell it or give it away. It's, um, but yet, in the face of all of that, you see a lot of these um, companies, especially plug-in companies um, and theme um, studio press, perfect example, thriving in that environment where you would be thinking, oh my gosh, all these themes, anybody can just take them now, change them and start a shop tomorrow and sell them. But yet um, studio press is, you know, thriving and uh, Pippin's plugins and lots of others like that are, and they're all working with GPL. So I think that's um, something to remember, I guess, as far as you know, what people are pay paying for is your expertise, your support, your brand, and those things have value. Yeah, I, I agree, Jackie. But I think it's pretty complicated because then you got that incident, you know, well, semi-notorious with WooCommerce when it was a separate company from Automatic. When, and I'm not, I forgot the company. You know, she got sharp. You know, they made an offer. The offer was refused. They thought, "Oh well," and they and, and they took the code and they fought it. Um, I I understand. Obviously, I looked into this myself because I've got a certain product, and the actual legal thing about the GPS uh, it's much more complicated than most people think. Um, like most legal. <laughs> Um, that's how lawyers make a lot of money, isn't it? Because they make everything really complicated. Um, but the actual ins and outs of it, like most things, is a bit more complicated than what most people think. And um, but I'm sure, I'm sure Wix will learn that. Um, yeah, um, I was going to say something, but I'm going to pull back from that. They, they might get slapped down. Anyway, um, yeah, just, you know, to sum up everything that the panel has said, um, Alex, the biggest thing that I drew out of this article is, you know, the, the actual selling of the product starts like long before the product is ready. And people aren't just buying into the product itself. They're buying into you, your company, your brand, and all those things, you know, if you build them up, if you market to people like consistently, they're familiar with you and they're more likely to want to buy your product even if it's exactly the same as, as a competing product. Yeah, I totally agree, John. I think it's about credibility, having people in the industry that can talk about your product, that gives you more, especially when it's a new product. Um, having They reckon you've got to touch somebody about seven times or more before they will buy um, and, and, and that was the like, you know, pre we are saturated in media all day, every day. Yeah. It was seven to ten times you know that's a lot that's a lot of times you've got to get in front of them isn't it alex would would you agree with some of the things i've just said alex, or do you think i'll just be yeah absolutely you? that's the i think it's it's exceptionally clear now that the the, the plan as much as there was a plan uh was, was grossly inadequate um, can, I, can I just quickly ask Alex because we're getting close to the break and we'll go on to the main story. But if you were doing doing the same thing now, what are some? Of, let's 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 look at the three. What are the three main things? Looking back, if you were doing the same thing now, you would do differently. That's a great question. Um, one, the product needs to have 
an exceptionally solid and really good unique selling point um there are obviously a lot more themes for sale now than there were five years ago at least offer something really unique that's appealing to people uh two people need to know what that is um need to be a clear plan for how to get that theme in front of people and three the customer experience needs to be like flawless we touched on on this already um it needs to be a really good experience for people once they purchase the product. Now, the, the purchase point is not the end. It's it, there's an ongoing thing after that, and that was a, a that was not how I saw it at the time. Those would be the three. That's great, Alex. Uh, I think shall we go for our break, John? Yeah, we're up against a break. Uh, when we come back from our break, we're going to be talking our main topic. We we're talking all about CSS. Uh, where it's been, where it's going, what we're frustrated with, and how we use it. See you after the break. Buying or selling a home in the greater Reno Tahoe area? I know the best CRS real estate broker, and that's Karen Conrad. And you can find her at karenconrad.com or call directly at 775-527-7021. We're coming back from our break. This is WP Tonic, episode 138. We've got our regular panel and our special guest, Alex Denning, and today we're talking the topic all about CSS, uh, how we use CSS, where it's going. And uh, first question that I want to ask Alex, uh, you said before we went on air that that um, you maybe like uh, have dabbled more in CSS uh, than maybe some of the other people on the panel. And, and one thing I want to ask you, what is the thing that you find most frustrating about CSS? Sure. <laughs> um, so so I, I, I used to use it a lot and less so now. Um, it, it seems that the, the advancements that are being made are trying to make things more intuitive. So I guess the, the biggest frustration would be that things don't work as you would expect so we're getting we're moving towards a point where uh things are not being repurposed for other purposes so i think we're going to talk about flexbox later um that's a great example it's it those are fixing problems that are things are being have been hacked together um and i guess straight up that just makes it confusing for people myself included <laughs> it just making things like you know move it seems uh, it, you know especially i think in in programming a lot of people kind of downplay css is like that's not a real language and it's really super simple um <laughs> only if they haven't worked with it, it was simple yeah, yeah. well i can I, I i can tell you this personally there's a lot of back-end programmers that really they get frustrated at CSS and, and they don't want to touch it. Do they really? Yeah. Do they, John? Well, there's, yeah, there's nothing to make you appreciate PHP like a little time working with CSS. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But, um, that, you know, I want to ask, uh, Jackie, um, you know, how is CSS changed over the years? And, uh, you know, how much easier is it now to like make things do what you want them to do as opposed to a few years ago? Now I'm using SAS. So 
writing CSS is much easier for me than it was um, before I had SAS and um, a preprocessor and a postprocessor to be able to generate my CSS. Some of the big challenges, you know, early on is all the vendor prefixes and um, having a difficult time understanding which ones you needed to use, which ones, what's appropriate, how many different ones did you need to use for specific things that you wanted to do. The other big challenge that um, early on was just understanding how the cascade worked and how the um, importance factors of whether or not you were using a um, class or you were using an ID and how all of those fit together, you would be, many people get frustrated early on because they'll put something in and they assume that this will work. It, it, it's perfectly good CSS, but because it's being trumped by something else that you don't even maybe even see on your screen, that's the big, that's like, I don't understand how this works. I don't understand what's going on. The color didn't change. You know, that, I, now I'm underlined. I don't know where that came from. And those were all uh, real challenges. What's made it really easy now is you have element, you know, you have a, the inspector to be able to look at where you are. You can see the cascade and how it's affecting the element that you're um, trying to target and look at. And I think that's made it a lot easier. The other things that I think are really um moving along in a positive direction for CSS is a lot of the things that require JavaScript to do, now you can do with CSS3 and there it's really powerful. I mean, animations, transforms, transitions, there's lots of things that you can do with just straight CSS. It's, it's amazing actually what you can do with just HTML and CSS and, and how you can get um, that the effects that you're looking for. You may not be able to get the interactivity with um, with elements like clicking on buttons and getting it to do things. But I was really surprised how uh, many things can be done without JavaScript and CSS. No, definitely. And, and what you're referring to, a lot of it is the CSS animations. And uh, those things were kind of like brand new, like when I was learning, but, but definitely they're pretty much like universally supported now. Um, you know, another good resource to look at for, you know, complicated like animations is uh, animate.css, which is a CSS animation library by Daniel Eden. Uh, that's definitely a, a, you know, something to look at as well. Uh, Sally, you just recently gave a talk at WordCamp Sacramento, falling in love with Flexbox. Uh, tell us a little bit about Flexbox and what problems in CSS that that has solved. Okay, so you know when you guys interviewed me on on Wednesday, you asked you know what the what the biggest change I'd seen was, and and there have been a lot of things, but I think responsive design is probably the thing that's really uh, made uh, you know made us all have to work a lot harder in in some ways, and to you know figure out how to both to just conceptualize how are we going to move this stuff around what is going to happen when the you know when the, when the screen changes sizes and then you know how to make uh, how to make it happen um, and uh, so there have been a lot of of kind of band-aid uh, solutions to things uh, and uh, you know they work sort of uh but many of them are, are pretty complicated. And Flexbox was actually designed to make responsive layouts easier uh, so that you can get the same effect with much less code uh, and uh, not have to write as many media queries because, you know, the thing is we're never going to have just a fixed set of sizes that we need to, to design for. Um, it, it's going to... Uh, 
you know, it, it's going to keep changing. And so something that will adjust itself, you know, no matter what the screen size and, and tell things to, you know, to fit properly and wrap when they need to wrap uh, and stack up when they need to stack up and, and so on uh, is really helpful. And it is, you know, it's, it makes a certain things like uh, vertical centering and so on just much easier and uh you know there is going to be a flex grid coming out but but right now you have to enable the experimental features on your browser to to uh to see it it just isn't supported so we can't really use it yet um and uh, you know i think as as things like that are developed to you know that's it, it's always going to be playing catch up with what we with what we need to do you know the the ease of of doing it uh and, uh, you know, I, I have to find a couple of hours to get myself set up using SAS because I'm sure it would make my life a huge amount easier. Uh, and uh, it, it makes a lot of sense to me to, to do it. I just haven't had time to do it yet. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Flexbox will make your life easier in responsive design. It's uh, very well supported now. It's a basic part of, of CSS3. It's, you don't have to add anything in in terms of, you know, libraries or, or frameworks or anything like that to use it. You can just uh, go ahead and use it. Definitely. Uh, Jonathan, well, uh, what, what are some of oh. the... Go ahead. Well, I think I think with Flexbox, obviously, um, uh, Sally's presentation, I, I didn't see it, but I, I looked at the notes and also looked at the notes on um, CSS tricks about Flexbox, and um, it's not simple. And that's from somebody um, who'd done a, a reasonable amount of front-end development a couple of years ago, actually made themes, John. Um, mm-hmm. And... Um, I wouldn't exactly say it's the easiest thing, but you know it was you know. But without Flexbox, you know, it was always painful to deal with centering things and also different. Um, if you had a container box, you know, you had different amounts of text. Um, you know how to deal with that in an effective way. It was always painful, and you know, always using floats. Um, and the kind of insane bugs that you could deal with um, with um, complicated float layouts, um, especially with background images, and um, yeah, you're not in here. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Um, and then you had the browser, um, and then obviously you had um, CSS3 and the prefixes. But I'd, I'd just like to ask the panel. Um, no, you, you know, it used to be dealing with Explorer, but now I get a lot of, um, when we're dealing with um, helping site owners and that, it's more around Safari and also with the Android, a lot of these Android devices, the um, browser that's in, that comes with it, depending on the manufacturer, is a kind of similarized, customized browser. Um, and you can get some insane bugs there as well. So, um, and I get the feedback that a lot, even now with Flexbox and the grid and some of the other things, um, getting browser com- um, browser um, compatibility around mobile devices um, 
you know, I, I, I've seen on Safari, Safari on the on the mobile device is not the Safari that you're dealing with on the desktop, and you can end up even with Chrome, you can get that. So, I, what, what's your experience, John? Uh, my experience is it's best to not use an emulator, test with a real device, uh, because iOS um, for iPad and iPhone is different than Safari for desktop. Safari does have some interesting bugs. Um, the current versions of IE are pretty good about supporting everything. Uh, you know, the older versions, obviously, you're going to want to use something like, uh, if you're using Flexbox, you're going to want to use the polyfill flexibility.js we'll link to that in show notes uh, and that will you know help your older versions be supported um, but yeah Safari has some some weird bugs from time to time and I think it's the webkit engine it's it's not um, specific to Safari um, all the time but uh, yeah some some interesting things and there are some Safari things uh, that you have to do some weird magic. To him, and, and I'll link to. Uh, I, I found a way to target just the newer versions of Safari, which I'll link to that too. Uh, I want to ask Alex something. Um, a lot of people nowadays they use, uh, or at least they have been, you know, for the last few years. But they've been using CSS frameworks like Bootstrap or Foundation. Uh, in your experience, do these things make it easier, or do they make it harder? To, to put things together in my experience yeah. they make they do the groundwork for you mm-hmm. and it's you know saves time i don't really have a lot to say like um they're a useful tool for cutting down on that repetitive groundwork i guess um yeah and you know that's a good thing <laughs> No, definitely, definitely. I, is, you know, when it's either you or a developer, you know, that's working with you, uh, is it hard sometimes to, like, override default styles, or is it pretty basic? Right, so um, that's... So I've done a lot of work with, like, theme support, um, and you get similar problems there where people it's counterintuitive a lot of the time that's not necessarily a bad thing but if i guess if you if you if you don't understand it then uh suddenly it becomes an awfully lot more complicated and i guess that speaks to what we were discussing earlier yeah Um, i think it does alex i just um i think when you come to css frameworks um Either you get a group of people that actually love them in the in the WordPress, you know, love Bootstrap um, Foundation, and you get other people that say, "Oh, they're bloated pieces of, you know, they just produce unwanted code. They're bloated, um, um, and." There, there doesn't seem to be much in between. Either you love them or you think they're bloated pieces of crap, basically. Um, there doesn't seem to be any middle. I don't know if you agree, Alex. Yeah, I, I have to say the, the the people I know who use them tend to be more back-end developer types who, when they need to do this, will ha- much more happily rely on these 
Um, I guess the cynicism comes from people who like to, who prefer to have a bit more control. Um, yeah, but the the fans are that certainly the people I know who use them um, are much more happy to use them are back end developers who you know are, I guess more familiar with these kinds of things anyway. Right, I think it's kind of like Jetpack. Right, whether you think it's a, a a horrible behemoth or or an incredibly useful tool depends in, in great part on how much of it you're using. You know, if if you set up Foundation or Bootstrap and you are using ninety nine percent of the styles they have, then that's a huge work saver. But if you want to, you know, only use a few things and really customize stuff, then you basically have you know twice as much CSS as as you need. And I. Uh, I have a book on uh, uh, high-performance responsive design by O'Reilly, and uh, you know they test some of these things on the on the frameworks and and several of them, not just Bootstrap and and Foundation, and they find that you know all of them, uh, you know there's kind of a load. I, you know, on the other hand, I know somebody who uses Foundation uh, regularly, and uh, you know she uh, builds really high-performance websites, so it's not like it's going to prevent you, uh, but you you have to decide is you know is this uh, something I want to rely on? And I can see how somebody who's, who's mainly um, a backend developer would, would prefer it because it's like you throw it in there and then you just need to pretty much put the HTML elements in and not really do any styling. Uh. Well, I think it's the same discussion as you get with either you're in Genesis or you're not. You know, I haven't got much time for the conversation myself. I, I, I just see Genesis or some other framework as a tool and if you're really into it, you're into it, and good luck to you. But if you're not, um, but you get these insane conversations. I'm a, you know, you, you know, I've, I've heard developers say to people, you know, I design in Genesis, and it's a lot better than the than the vanilla WordPress. Um, sorry, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think, I think if you're into Genesis, you're a certain type of developer, and you really love it. And you, um, and I know other developers that do equally good work, and they don't like Genesis. Um, it's really what really gets you going, really, as a developer. Really, that's what I, that's what I think. I, I I think that could be part of it too, and and it could be a lot of you know the same reason why people are drawn to certain types of tools. It could be the same reason why some people are drawn to front end and some people are drawn to back end. A lot of it has to do with like the way that their mind you know, works and, and is drawn to. Uh, I want to ask Jackie one question before we go to our second break. Uh, you know, earlier you mentioned, uh, you know, you, you know, obviously use SAS. Um, you know, how did you come to choose that? Because I know there are other uh, CSS preprocessors like Less. And, and tell us a little bit about your workflow. The um, transition into SAS occurred, I think, when I got Utility Pro, uh, which is a premium Genesis theme that Carrie Dills wrote, um, which came with SAS um, already set up in it to get started. And at that time, I was going through, I think, a course on Treehouse, which was um, CSS to SAS. It was a course that Gil Hernandez taught, which is a great course. If you are thinking about going to SAS, I would highly recommend watching that one. It wasn't very long, but it was. It actually took you from working with a CSS style sheet and then breaking it all out and converting it into um, SAS partials, which 
when you see that all go in that reverse order, it makes so much more sense to you than if somebody was to show you a bunch of SAS parcels and then you can't really see what the end result is yet. You know, okay, I'm starting off with this great CSS style sheet. How am I going to, you know, you break it all up. So it was a great course that was very helpful. I've recently switched to Gulp for my task runner. I'm using Post's CSS to uh, do my auto prefixing and a few other functions well, can in I there. Can I interrupt quickly, Jackie? Can you explain yes. what, what those things do? The Post CSS, um, the auto prefixer on there will, will basically, it, it, I no longer have to worry about auto prefixing my partials, right? So I have all of my sash partials written. There's no prefixing in there at all. So basically with your post CSS, you just specify in the configuration, I want to support the last two browser versions. And then it will go when it compiles and put in the browser prefixes for the last two versions for all the things that would require it in your um, SAS that you've written. So that saves you from having to maintain that. And every time you do a new compiling, it'll update it based on the browser versions that are available. And you don't have to worry about keeping up with that. That saves you from having a bunch of legacy vendor prefixes in your CSS, which is very common right now in most you know, child themes because the older child themes haven't been updated in a while. They have a lot of old vendor prefixes in them. So this, allow this allows you to keep your code fresh and, and more modern in there. The other thing I'm using is a CSS MQ packer, which basically helps um, organize your style sheet and gets all your media queries together. When you're writing in SAS, you want to put your media queries right where you're working. So if you're working on class.content and you're going to have some media queries in there, you just go ahead and put them right in there and you use the nesting for them so that it keeps everything all together. But when it renders it, it'll go ahead and put all of the media queries together, like in a normal style sheet would, would appear. So that's some of the things that you automate in your um, when you compile your SAS, like with post-CSS. So that allows me to be very efficient with working with it. I get to use the variables and a lot of the other features that SAS offers um, when I'm building out my partials. And it makes it easy to modify. So if I need to change the styling colors for a theme, I go to one partial. It's usually my variables partial. And in there is all of the variables and what the colors are, the hexadecimal color equivalents are. And you just basically make your changes there. It's also great for um, putting in your uh, media query uh, viewport widths and everything else. You can use variables for all of that. So when you want to configure a starter theme and spin it up, all you got to do is go to this one file and make your adjustments there and then recompile your SAS and it spits out a style sheet that's got all of that built in for you. And if you're working with a, um, like a starter theme that I'm working with when I start each project, this really streamlines it. Whether you're using Genesis or not really doesn't matter. It, none of that really comes into play. This is all outside of that. But it definitely will help you be much more efficient in your workflow yeah, versus just, taking want, a plain style sheet and then having to start all over from scratch with it. Yeah, I just want to recap, folks, you know, for the people that may be not so advanced as Jackie and um, the other panel members. Um is that what I'll be correct? What what um, Jackie's talking about is um, the prefixes. 
to get the kind of um, rounded edges, the kind of modern um, look that you um, that many clients want, is that you're going to have to use CSS free, and a lot of that is browser specific. They have prefixes um, that work um, for a Pacific browser, and if you don't use something like SAS, folks, you're you're going to have a, a fair bit of um, duplicating different prefixes for different browsers and what I think um, what Jackie's saying if you go the SAS or LAS um, route um, uh, with the tools that she was talking about it um, with the SAS that she's using it automatically you can set which browsers it's going to write these prefixes and it does it for you Would, am I correct there Yes, you are. Um, but just, just one other point is, even if you're not using SAS or a um, preprocessor, post-CSS can run on a CSS file. So you could have, if you've decided, okay, I just have a very basic CSS style sheet, you can go in and remove the vendor prefixes from there. And vendor prefixes, like you were saying, they're just there to qualify something for a specific browser. Maybe that needs that prefix in, to to um support the code that you've just written. It's not like standard yet. That's what those vendor prefixes are for. But you can run on a plain CSS style sheet, remove all your browser prefixes, and then just have that automatically added with a post-CSS processor. So um, you could use Grunt, you could use Gulp, uh, you know, anything like that to do that. I I love these names, um, Jackie, uh, Gulp and the Grunt. Um, When I was doing it, I was using CodeKit. Is CodeKit similar to Grunt and Gulp? Is that basically does some of the fins or is it? I am not familiar with CodeKit, so I couldn't answer that question. I know that um, Grunt and... um, Gulp are similar. I find that it's for me since Gulp is like just pure JavaScript. It's much easier for me to uh, work in and understand. I think Grunt's a little uh, is more like a JSON format. Yeah. And what it's does little, it, what does it basically do, Jackie? Basically, you set it up. It's a file, and you set it up to run, and it you can set it up to watch your folders, right, for changes. So anytime you make a change to one of your partials or to your CSS file, it will initiate a, you know, compiling, and it'll start going through and grabbing all of them, compiling them, and then outputting a um, finished CSS file. So that's that that you can do. You can even, there's lots of other things you can do with it too. You can make it live load again and just all kinds of stuff in there. Yeah, it is similar similar to CodeKit actually. Um, But the two that you've mentioned, I know have become a bit more popular. Um, But thanks for that, Jack. I just thought I would intervene just for the people that aren't as um, technically savvy as you, Jackie. Um, um, Because you're pretty hardcore, aren't you? Um, What about, uh, um, what about, John, do you do you use any of this at the present moment, or do you? Um, no, you know, I'm. I have resisted like um, using stuff like Grunt and Gulp. I'm pretty old school. Um, I usually just, you know, do my own prefixes, write my own CSS. Um, I have started kind of changing the way that I lay out my style sheets. I'll usually lay out like a rule, and then put the media query right there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't use any like compiling stuff. And part of that too is cause I'm on a PC, uh, you know, code kit is like an app. Um, 
it compiles pretty much everything, not only the CSS pro- preprocessors, but CoffeeScript, Haml, um, all those different things, um, as you mentioned. But it's Mac only. And, and so that's probably like part of the reason why. So yeah, um, that yeah. would be a problem, would it, John? Yeah. What about but, Sally? Uh, what do you, are you like John or are you getting more like Jackie with grunts and? Uh... Uh, I want, I want to move toward where uh, Jackie is going. And yeah, I thought uh, I had this vague notion that the, the big difference between sort of code kit and, and stuff like grunt and gulp apart from uh, it being one platform only was that, you, you know, one has a, a GUI and, and the rest is command line. Um, and since I finally got started using Git, I'm getting friendlier with the command line again, uh, which I remember from my very early days in the web when, you know, that was what you had because, you know, it was Unix and, and that was it. Um, uh, you can, uh, I've been using Sublime Text because, you know, um, PHP Storm is another thing I haven't had time to learn properly. Uh, and uh, you can get an auto prefixer for that, so you don't even have to be doing any any yeah. post or, or pre work. It will just add that you tell it, you know, you you tell it how many versions back you want it to support, and it will stick your prefixes in. And whenever you save the file, uh, and you know that is certainly uh, handy. Uh, and you know, it just is. It's it's clear that the you know that that once I can take the time to jump into this stuff and just do it. Uh, it, it will, you know, speed things up and make them easier, which I generally prefer uh, to have my work be easier rather than than harder. And I'm also on a PC and it, it you know, it really doesn't make much of a difference with a lot of this stuff. Shall, shall we go for our break, uh, John? Oh, yeah, definitely. Let's hit our break. Uh, when we come back uh, from our last break, we'll be talking more all about CSS. See you after the break. Want to turn your WordPress website into an online speed machine? Go on over to WP Tonic. They'll set up DigitalOcean websites hosting on solid state drives. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for WP Tonic's maintenance packages. WP Tonic offers some of the very best WordPress maintenance packages on the market. So those who are serious about getting the very best platform for their WordPress sites, make sure you go on over to wp-tonic.com. We're coming back from our break, and uh, we're with our panel and our special guest, Alex Denning, and we're talking all about CSS. Um, you know, one thing I want to ask Alex is um, when it comes to email, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, definitely. Uh, like CSS and email, is is this the last frontier of of uh, CSS uh, being applicable, uh, how, how do you deal with that, Dave? So I actually had some, very recently, um, at masterwp.co, I was working on a, an email course for people to like get from WordPress, like regular user point to like power user point. Um, so I was working with uh, developer Ben Gilbanks on that. And that was a, an email course we set up in Mailchimp, um, and yeah, <laughs> it's it's an interesting one. I think we we did make it work, but that's more because of Ben's skill <laughs> than uh, we had people telling us that all sorts is broken. Uh, yeah, is it the last frontier? Like um, last nightmare, I would say. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like. It's the difficulty in getting 
emails to display nicely across all devices is, I guess, like what we talked about with, say, different versions of Android, like times 100. <laughs> um, yeah, so my specific experience is I it is well it for, for me it was possible for us to make this work um but that was just because ben's really good uh rather than anything that, about the language itself it was i understand it was a, a massive pain that we had to put up with so yeah some some progress there would be great if that's possible please not anytime soon i don't think um <laughs> Yeah, I'm not uh, holding my breath on that one. You can't even use web fonts in email. No, definitely. Um, I, I did read somewhere, I think, somewhere in the near future, Gmail will support media queries. I think well, Gmail has already started to, yeah. but, uh, yeah, that's only if you're using Gmail. It's pretty patchy. Um, and, of course, you, you've had the trend because of the marketing folder and the changes gmail implemented around spam that you're you know you're getting very simplistic emails sent by marketers because they don't want to end up in the marketing folder um and you've got all that business as well so that's been a trend as well but it is a bit of a nightmare you know my advice to people is keep it simple and if you do have you know have some knowledge about the different clients and the percentage of market. If you've got a list of 5,000 people and let's say they're using Yahoo, um, that might, you know, you have to look at who's how many people are using Yahoo to open your email. And if it's like only like 1%, is it really worth, depending on your budget and the technical support you've got, is it really worth spending hours and hours and hours and hours trying to fix it up? I don't know. You just really got to play it by ear, really, don't you? Would you agree with that, John? Um, I would say, you know, it, it, it's amazing that that uh, the one thing that we can't solve is uh, email because the only fail-safe way to render in all uh, email clients and browsers is to construct email templates in tables which is you know and and put css inline css in each uh you know block of that so uh you know that was the reason for that question if we could ever solve that problem i mean that would be you know literally like ground shaking but um it, well, it would require a lot more cooperation among uh you know email people who make email clients than i think is uh, likely to happen in the in the near future because you know you can get your uh, you can at least get a fairly consistent layout with uh, tables. But um, for instance, if you use Outlook, which I still do, uh, it simply doesn't recognize margins or padding. No, no, not at all. So, so all your buttons look really horrible. Uh, yeah. So, folks, what you can get from this is um, when you're learning your SAS and all your grunt and all your um, all your great stuff, don't <laughs> think it's going to work. It's going to really pay it out when you're asked to do an email template because it ain't going to work, folks. Mm. Um, I like I like to move, ask the panel and John about this grid business about you know the CSS grid. What? How do you see that? Do you use it? And how do you think it's going to change 
development? Well, you can't use it yet, um, as Sally mentioned. Um, I did watch, uh, Morton has a course on Linda uh, CSS Grid First Look that he recorded, I think, earlier this year. Uh, it's not available yet to use in production. Um, and frankly, I'm not sure how much brain power I want to invest like this year on um, learning more about it. I, I suspect by next year, this time, you know, it'll be um, much more kind of in the mix and what you're doing. But basically the difference between Flexbox, which is a one dimensional grid and CSS grid, which will actually be a two dimensional grid. And from what I've learned so far, the easiest way to explain the difference is in Flexbox, you can't line things up in columns once you start with the wrapping. But in CSS grid, you will be able to and you'll be able to take blocks and move them around in different areas on your page. So you'll be able to create really nice print layouts with multi columns and have things. And the example that was out, I think they have a periodic table of the elements that is all done in a CSS grid because it's two dimensional. So you can move things all around. It's, um, it's going to make things a lot easier in the future. It's going to take some time though, for all the browsers to implement it and for the, um, for the support like where we are now with Flexbox, you know, everybody was excited maybe two years, three years ago about Flexbox coming out. And it's taken about two or three years to get mm -hmm. to where we are feeling comfortable about using it every day on website builds. Um, and I think it'll probably take a little bit longer for that. But that is the future. That's where that's going. And understanding how that works is something, you know, carve out a little bit of time over the next year to um, get introduced to that. The, uh, Rachel Andrews has a great site. I think it's um, Grid by Example is the site. And John, I'll, oh, you don't oh, have Rachel, a she's still going, is she? I, I yeah. Oh, yeah. And it is a, a great site with lots of good examples on there so that you can understand how it'll work. It's definitely going to make building more complex websites um, easier and kind of break the mold on the traditional way we're laying out websites. You'll have a lot more flexibility. Yeah. You'll also have be able to start doing some more adaptive design for different devices, which I think is going to be really important. I think that's the future. Like I wrote a little post not too long ago about, you know, letting go of your desktop mindset and that um, just rearranging and shoving things down in a mobile view is not really creating a good user experience. And so you're going to need these kind of tools to be able to manipulate and move things around in such a way that maybe something that's in a sidebar is actually going to appear at the top of a page on a mobile view. And it's not something that's easily done right now. No. I have to get Rachel on the show next year. She do, do you... Oh, yeah. She's still very active. Yes. yes. She's still doing very. Perch. She's still doing Perch. Yes. All oh, right. Yeah, I used to. I used that a couple of times when I was in the UK. Blimey, she been at. They've been at that for a while, haven't they? Uh, um, she's a great developer, though. Bit of a ca bit of a character as well. She would laugh at my jokes, John. No problem. Everyone laughs at your jokes. <laughs> not all. Not all, Jackie. Uh, 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 well, uh, go on. There's certain language. Uh, uh, yeah, good. I'm not going to. All right. Yeah. All right. I was I was just going to ask the panel um, before maybe we go into bonus content. Yeah. Uh, you know, what are some innovative, you know, sites or things that you've seen done uh, with CSS recently, uh, Alex? 
Um, I I don't know. <laughs> um, as I mentioned, my my experience with this is somewhat limited, um, and only recently have I really got back and into it. So the stuff, just kind of all of the stuff I've seen recently, certainly what um, Jackie was talking about, I need to I need to read up on that. I need to get moving on that um, because. Yeah, that sounds like it's going to make my life easier. Um, but I, then I could specifically answer your question, I'm afraid. That's fine. Okay. All good. Jackie? I would say if you're looking for some good examples, CodePen's probably where I would go to to take a look. I've got favorites on there that I've been, you know, penning up here all the time of things that I like. And uh, I even um, have recently done some work with the animation with CSS and transforms and transitions. And I found that uh, very helpful in understanding how that works. And I think you mentioned, John, that CSS animate or Mm animate.css. There's also a SAS version of that too. And you can comment out what you don't need so that you're only including, which is really good, the actual code you're going to be using (laughs) and keeping your style sheet as lean as possible. And um, one last thing I wanted to mention on that regard, too, when you're when you are using your post CSS processor and everything, be sure to minify your production CSS. It does help a lot with page load time. Nope, I agree. Very good. Sally. Uh, I saw this really interesting article. I think it was on Smashing Magazine about um, CSS shapes and being able to wrap your text sort of in a circle around it circular uh, image and and that kind of thing it it looked like it was uh, you know uh, possibly a bit above my pay grade just at the moment and, and that I might need to uh, you know I I need to study it up I wasn't going to be able to just read the article and go out and do it even even you know in in areas where it was supported uh, but uh, you know that was really interesting and and um, somebody posted recently uh, and and kindly uh, tagged me in it so that I would be aware of it uh, an article about you know building carousels with Flexbox uh, and not having to use uh, JavaScript for it, uh, which seemed really interesting and was was not a thing I had tried yet. Oh, very good, very good. Jen Simmons is the the person who did the. Uh the talk on the CSS shapes. And I recommend everybody go see that and just kind of give you inspiration. Jonathan, anything that you've seen recently? I think, um, I think I'll Chris, let's go back to CSS tricks and, and his product. Um, oh God, my brain pen. Code pen. Um, it's just a great thing because, you know, you see the actual code, you know, unlike going to some, going to some, um, article by somebody and they they, they got then you try and it doesn't work you know you can actually see it and then take it and adapt it yourself and you you can work out it's just a great product isn't it and old chris always always think you know um he always makes me laugh chris and um he's not afraid to um take on something you know you look at some of his videos and he really struggles himself but it doesn't bother him does he john he just he just goes for it, don't he? It's fearless. Yep, have... Fearless, isn't he? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Uh, one of the things that I... Re- you know, it, it, one good way to, like, you know, find, like, how people are pushing it is definitely CodePen. Uh, there's a lot of stuff with the CSS animation that is just crazy. It's it's stuff that you wouldn't believe that people could do. Um, 
you know, definitely you could just spend days and days there uh, seeing stuff. A lot of times if, if you browse like kind of higher end agency sites, uh, you'll see people doing funky things with uh, CSS that are, they're kind of mind blowing. One site that I'll put in show notes too is the 2015 deconstruct.org site, which I, I've always thought was like a really good use of CSS. Uh, yeah, lots of cool stuff going on there. I'll, I'll link that up in show notes. Um, so we have a little bit of time for bonus content. So if you uh, want to find us on the WP Tonic website, you can definitely uh, you know get the bonus content there. Uh, before I let the panel like uh, tell us where to find them, I want to remind everybody, uh, if you're getting value from this show, be sure to find us in iTunes, subscribe uh, to us on your podcast player of choice, write us a review. It definitely helps more people find this show. Uh, you know, people writing reviews, it's, it's definitely helping us uh, reach a, a wider audience. Um, so I'll let the panel... Uh, Tell us where to find them. Alex, how do we find you? You can find me at alexdunning.com, um, where I have a newsletter called Digital Essentials, where I write about, uh, I guess, the challenges of working in the modern digital economy. Um, I'm also on Twitter, obviously. It's just my name, Alex Dunning. Um, if you want to see me write about WordPress, which is obviously everyone's favorite, um, at masterwp.co, working on a, a course for WordPress, like regular users who want to become experts. And we got a free email course there that is, is, is really good. I'll check that out. Sounds awesome. Uh, Jackie, how do we get a hold of you? You can reach me at jackiedalia.com. I'm on Twitter at jdalia. And you can also find me at Rethink.fm, where I'm the host of the Rethink FM podcast. And definitely, everybody should check out Rethink.fm. Definitely. Uh, definitely. Sally, how did we get a hold of you? Sure. You can go to WPFangirl.com, uh, which is my business website. And uh, easier to spell than my name. But if you can spell my name, you can find me everywhere because there's only one of me in Google. Can you give us some Greek, Sally? Uh, let's see. When we did the uh, no, uh, we did the Odyssey before. Uh, 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 no, it's all right. I let you off this time. I'm sort of blue. Uh, I'm terrible. I'm cruel. I know, John. Jonathan, how do we get all to you? <laughs> um, <laughs> you, can get, you can get me at Jonathan at wp tonic dot com or get me on on um, Twitter at Jonathan Denwood. Nice and simple. Oh, and remember, and, folks, come every week and listen to us. You've got to get your spoonful of of WordPress medicine every week, haven't you? Twice a week. Twice a week. I, I, I think we're the only WP uh, WordPress people doing this uh, twice a week. But, uh, you we're bonkers, uh, aren't we, John? We're just bonkers. Aren't yeah, we? we're just pushing it out. Uh, but if you, uh, So if you want to get a hold of me, uh, you can find me on my website, which is LockdownDesign.com. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter. It's lockdown underscore. Uh, be sure to tune in for our next episode. Uh, who are we interviewing, Jonathan? Good question. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> do yeah. you know, John? I, I do. Actually, uh, anyway. We, well, you, uh, like, you like to share that, John? Uh, we'll we'll, we'll um, 
No, we'll just go to the break. <laughs> All right. Okay, uh, catch, catch us for the bonus content, and uh, we'll see you next time. See you later, folks. Thank you.